Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Absenteeism is at an extraordinary number right now. According to a recent report, it's in the spec today, you can read it there. Up to 20% of public school board elementary students were absent on a typical day in November. It's double the rate of what was going on in 2020. Up to 15% in November for high school students. Compared to three or four percent. That's almost four, that's four times higher for high school students. Now, I think we know what's going on here. We had COVID, we've got we're hearing about all these respiratory illnesses, whether it's COVID back again, whether our immune systems have been destroyed, whatever the case is. Um we are we are seeing kids not able to get to school and teachers too. They're, the staff is off sick more often now. So there's clearly sickness going around. It's clearly affecting who can go to school. It's clearly affecting how many people are missing how many days. But what do you do if you're a student? What do you do if you're a parent? And for whatever reason, your kid is missing school after school after school after Missing school after school after school because of COVID and because of this and because of that. I want to bring in a good friend of this show. Uh, He is the leading educational consultant in this country. His name is Paul Bennett. He's the director of Schoolhouse Institute. He joins us now. Paul, how are you today? Great to be back with you, Scott. Really appreciate it, especially because I know this topic uh, I don't know if near and dear is the right way to describe it, but it's near and dear to you. You have been tweeting about this and retweeting stories. This has been something that you have been on for the last number of weeks about how all over the place, how many schools are facing this crisis. Well, chronic absenteeism used to be rare, but what's happened over the last few weeks is it's become normalized in school systems, not just in Hamilton Wentworth, where there's an excellent story in your paper about how extensive it is, but uh, everywhere I look across the country, and um, I've been following it for the last month. But as you may know, I've also tracked um, student attendance and absenteeism for much of the last decade. So I bring a little deeper and broader perspective to bear on all of these recent spurts and explosions of absenteeism. So when you use the word normalized, uh, see, I, I there's two different ways that could be taken. One is that this is just our new reality because of everything going on. Or two is something a little less exciting, which is that we now accept it more. Which one would it be? I would say the second of the two. I'm concerned, as anyone would be that follows education, at how quickly something which used to raise alarm bells is being accepted as normal. That was the intent of my comment there. But having said that, you know, going back um, to 2008, when I first started looking at attendance and absenteeism, and going through the last decade or so, there's an increasing uh, realization that a researcher has that things that were unacceptable a decade ago are almost, almost being accepted there's almost a necessity to accept them because of the pandemic and the impact on schools everywhere. And, okay, and is it, are we accepting it then because we have just shit, rape, thrown our hands in the air and said there's nothing we can do about this? We don't want kids coming to school sick, so what are we supposed to do? We just accept that they're off. Once it sets in, it's hard to reverse. Maybe I should just 
illustrate the point for your listeners, which is uh, there was a common understanding up until about 2016, 2015, that if students missed um, 15 or more days of the year, they were considered to be chronically absent. There was also a recognition that increasing numbers of students were engaging in what was called school refusal behavior. In other words, they were skipping class not once, not twice, but on a repetitive basis. So they identified some benchmarks for assessing what good student attendance was and when chronic absenteeism became a problem. And they came up with these benchmarks that 10%, if you miss 10%, if there's 10% absenteeism on a given day, that is a serious problem. And if students miss 25% of the time over the course of a school year, it adversely affects their marks. And they did an assessment of students who were chronically absent, and they found that there was a direct relationship between their non-attendance and the decline in their marks. So, in fact, the research says it has a direct and irreversible impact on their marks. Now, uh, what's happened since March 2020, the pandemic and the um, exposure to all of these new viruses and then the default to online emergency remote learning is that there's been no question that um, absenteeism has grown and has become pretty entrenched in school systems. You've got an example there in Hamilton-Wentworth where, you know, for a few days in, um, in uh, November you had um, as much as 20% of students were away. That's one in five. But that's not... Uh, as bad as some other jurisdictions, you know, in, say, Nova Scotia, where I live, in certain weeks in November, it was 30 to 50 percent of the students were not there. They simply were not there. And uh, there were classrooms with no students in it. Or uh, a class with 30, you might have two, three. And uh, who rang the alarm bell? Who blew the whistle? It was actually the uh, teachers of Nova Scotia. They they were um, extremely upset because not only was there um, rampant absenteeism, but it was also affecting the teacher force because of uh, the trifecta, the tri <laughs> the tridemic is the three um, afflictions that are hitting us. But it was also um, there were no supply teachers, and the um, let's just give you an example the. <laughs> The senior bureaucrat in the Ministry Ministry of Education here said there was nothing to worry about because all classes were covered with substitutes. Now, that's a very low benchmark for offering education. And what that means is simply covering covering the classes was enough. They'd given up kind of trying to uh, reel students back in. Now, it's a very, very complex issue. And, sure it uh, is, and and it's going to have impact. It's going to have impact, obviously, Paul. I mean, I I don't think there's a person listening who would say, "Oh no, it's no big deal. You miss a whole bunch of school. It's obviously no big deal." We have very little time, but what do you do then? Because if someone is truly sick, we don't really want them coming to school and giving it to everybody. But at the same time, uh, maybe there are this many people who are sick. But what, what what do we do in the meantime, or what do we do to catch them up, or should we expect to catch them up, or should we just tell them, hey, if you missed all this school, you figure it out? Well, I think it's almost beyond recovery at this point for um, a large proportion of the current generation of students. They've lost so much time. 
and now they've been hit by this and uh this should have been a recovery year and uh when is the recovery going to start but let's let's just be specific um when you see absenteeism there are four reasons uh it starts with the student they're either bored or they're refusing to go to school or they're skipping it or they're ill it's the home through family neglect lack of support for schooling it could be the school itself a poor school climate uh too many disruptions unmet educational needs in the school uh you can't get the kind of support you need and the final thing is society is it a related to poverty or and the um are kids staying off now because they need to s- supplement the family income so there's four reasons why absenteeism starts to become ingrained and i think we've got evidence that all of those conditions prevail here so how do you turn it around i hate to say this but i think we're looking at a default to online learning again uh because you have to begin asking the question um if it gets worse in january and february and there's no one there and i've i've raised this question with lots of academics and researchers you know the whole argument of uh bringing back uh on bringing back in person learning was that kids belong in school they need to be in school they're better off there but if they're not showing up and they're not healthy and they're not able to participate then we've got a whole other issue so i think we need to be looking at you know some other um you know being a little more flexible in terms of how we deliver education sure better something than nothing think, i don't think this is over i think it's going to go into january and february Better something than nothing. It's a, I think that's a fair point that people could probably agree on. Uh, Paul Bennett, director of the Schoolhouse Institute. Uh, always appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the call. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. want to read you a tweet that was sent out two days ago. It was a joke. It was a tongue-in-cheek joke tweet. It's by Mackenzie Hughes, local PGA Tour pro. And he wrote this. This has been a tough decision to make, but after talking with my family and friends, I've decided to retire. The game has just beaten me up too much over the years. One day I may come back, but for now, anyway, he goes on. That's That caused people to freak out around here. Let me finish the tweet, though. One day I may come back, but for now, it's time to say goodbye to fantasy football. Thanks for all the support. So he was having some fun. He was poking the bear a little bit, getting everyone's attention. However, I bring this up, not be, it was a joke, clearly. I bring this up, though, because I started to get phone calls left, right, and center from people because they know I've covered him. And on Twitter, people are writing, not quite understanding, you were really coming into your own. It was amazing to me that the information was all there, but people only read the beginning and jumped to conclusions. I want to bring in Matthew Johnson. He is the Director of Education for Media Smarts, which helps with social media and media literacy. Uh, Matthew, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sorry for the long intro there, but I, I'm as I read this, the reason I wanted to have you on is because at first I laughed, and then I thought, how is it that the answer, the information is there and yet people only read a few words and leapt to a conclusion, left Twitter and decided they, this seems to me to be the absolute pinnacle epitome of why we seem to have so many people who don't know what's going on on social media. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit of an unusual example because, uh, as you say, in this case, people didn't even really read to the end of the tweet before uh, jumping to conclusions about what 
was meant. But it is a good example of how so often when we're getting information from social media um, and sometimes from from you know traditional media as well, uh, we often don't take the extra step to seek out the context. So frequently, people won't necessarily take the extra step to you know, read an article that was linked to to make sure that it's being represented accurately. They won't take the extra step to find out who was sharing something uh, to find out whether they're a parody account or whether they're reliable to find out whether they have there's any reason to believe what they're saying. Uh, so this is really just an extreme example of something that we know happens all the time. Well, and, and you know, when this came out, and again, I, I thought it was pretty funny because, you know, it caught me for the first five seconds and then I read it again. And I was like, oh, oh, I get it. I, I see. But clearly, as you say, th- th- it's not that difficult. But once we have apparently got the first shred or nugget of an idea in our head, we run with it. And that that can only lead to problems when we now all of us have the accessibility to social media to then amplify this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why it's more important than ever that we be critical consumers of all kinds of information, because we're not just consumers anymore. We're broadcasters as well. We have the ability, as you say, to amplify something, but we also have the ability to 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 contextualize it. And so there may very well have been lots of people who were, for instance, quote tweeting this with their own interpretation, assuming that he was actually retiring, that it wasn't a joke. Uh, and then people would have seen that layer. They would have seen the interpretation layer without necessarily even looking at the original. So it really is essential more than ever that we take you know, just a little bit of time. And and one of the messages that we have at Media Smarts is that most of the time, even for something a little more complicated than this, it's not going to take you more than 30 seconds or a minute to verify something before you share it. But we do have to get in that habit of taking a few quick steps to verify something before we share it and lend it our legitimacy and our audience. You know, when we were kids, probably most of us, most people listening at one time or another played broken telephone. I didn't ever realize that that was going to be a a, a documentary of what we were going to go through down the road. I mean, it's true. That's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the reasons why, for instance, one of the tips that we recognize, or sorry, that, that we recommend is, is finding the original source of uh, any piece of information, any news story, any claim that you see. Because as you say, like in Broken Telephone, it may have been changed. It may be decontextualized. It may be misrepresented. Um, And really also you can only judge the reliability of a story by judging the reliability of the original source. You're actually wasting your time. If you're not sure that you know where something came from, you're kind of wasting your time verifying the reliability of the people who shared it with you because what really matters is where it came from originally. So it's really important to take a few seconds, try and find where something originally came from. And only then, if it's not a source that you already recognize as being reliable or unreliable, do you take that extra step and maybe Google it or look on Wikipedia or something like that to see whether or not it's reliable in general and 
possibly an authority or an expert on that particular topic. What comes of this, though, is we've got people in government, we've got people all over the place who are trying to find ways to prevent us from being fed misinformation, disinformation, whatever. We're trying to put, there's a bill right now that essentially in some ways is trying to put obstacles in the way of us being given bad information. I just think we don't probably need that if we just did, as you say, the 30 seconds extra work to either read through the whole thing, read past the headline, or see if it's coming from the onion or from the Babylon Bee or some (laughs) other joke source. It doesn't take an awful lot of work, but we don't want to do that, it seems. Yeah, well, I think we do have to, in some ways, change our our social norms and our values. Um, You know, and, and one of the things that I like to compare it to is, is driving because of course there is an important role uh, when in driving safety for, for legislation and regulation. We know when we get into a car, we're a lot safer than we were 50 years ago uh, because of things like mandatory seatbelts and, and you know, certain construction requirements to make a car safer. But at the same time, we also, everyone who has, who drives, Uh, takes driving lessons. And we learn, we learn these habits that when cars were first introduced and for a long time, uh, people weren't expected to do, but we now do these things automatically and we expect other people to do them. And it's very much the same where uh, things that may seem complicated at first, like using a fact-checking tool like Snopes or doing a reverse image search to find out where a photo came from, these things, the first time you do them, they can seem a little complicated, but once you've practiced them a couple of times, they become as natural as you know shoulder-checking when you're driving. Do we do a good, are we, and when I say we, society, are we doing a good enough job introducing this and teaching this in school? Because that's where kids, I mean, it's not just kids that are the problem here, obviously, Mm -hmm. but are we teaching kids this as part of the curriculum so they know how to do this? Or is that a missing piece? I'd say it varies from province to province. So in Ontario, um, it actually is pretty well placed in the social studies curriculum. We have a new language a curriculum that's about to be introduced next, uh, I think in the fall. So we haven't actually seen that yet. Obviously, we're really hoping. Ontario was a world leader in introducing media literacy into the curriculum. Um, but because the current curriculum was written in 2006, uh, it doesn't have a lot about verifying uh, content in the language curriculum. So we're really hoping that the new language curriculum is going to have an expanded approach to digital media literacy that really recognizes the ways that the media landscape has changed since 2006, how networked media is fundamentally different from the old broadcast model. And we need to update our approach to media literacy to recognize that. And it's it's good that kids would be taught it. But let me say for the record that every single person who reached out to me in a frantic, I can't believe he's retiring, was an adult. So we adults who probably we would like to believe would be the mature ones who would go through the process and do everything right, we're not exactly doing it all that well either. Well, we didn't grow up in this environment either. Um, So these things are just as new. In fact, in some ways, they're harder for us. Um, So for older people, the, the, the problem tends to be that we are too trusting. Uh, Ah. because we grew up expecting to be able to tell the difference between, 
you know, the Globe and Mail and the Weekly World News. And now online, they look just the same or a link to them. Looks the same. <laughs> That's a great point. The issue with young people tends to be the opposite, that um, they know they can't trust everything online, but they don't know how to tell what they can trust. And so, in fact, they're more likely to reject reliable sources or to just treat everything as equally untrustworthy. And of course, when we do that, we just believe what we want to believe. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it becomes a more and more complicated thing. Uh, Matthew Johnson, Director of Education for Media Smarts, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.